next to you. Uh, it's, uh, it's always good to experience some neat things uh, like we experienced in Africa together from, with pastors, leaders from around the globe, worshiping together, uh, singing songs of praise in French and Spanish and English all at the same time. It was a tremendous experience for sure, but it is good to be home with you. I wanted to thank you for uh, your prayers as far as uh, all the travel. I didn't get sick, got all my flights on time. Uh, my, my suitcase uh, arrived home a day later than I did. But other than that, uh, everything went super smooth. Appreciate your prayers. Also just want to thank you for loving and caring for my wife while I was away. So I was in Africa, our daughter Hannah was in Ireland, our son Elijah was at the beach on spring break with his friends, and uh, my sister, who normally would be around to kind of help out with things, uh, she was in Texas. So everybody scattered across the, the globe, and uh, she was here, her and Faith, and I just know it meant a lot to me to know that you were uh, being kind and thoughtful towards her, so uh, thank you very much. I want to show you this picture as we get started uh, thinking about change. As I left Nairobi from the airport uh, there in Nairobi, we drove past this place. It has a name. It's called Kibera. It's a slum. In fact, it is the largest slum in all of Africa. Over 500,000, over a half million people live uh, this reality every day on about $2, maybe less than $2 a day. And as you can imagine, that level of poverty brings with it all kinds of just uh, challenges that you and I can't really relate to, right? Every imaginable challenge that would come with that level of poverty, that's their daily existence. And when you see that, I don't know how many of you have ever, like, you maybe have seen pictures like this on TV, uh, but when you see it in person, how do, you, how do you see something like that and you're not changed by it? Last Saturday, uh, my flight home wasn't until midnight. And so I, I had two choices. There was a couple other pastors that were staying a few more days and they were going to do some training at a church and then do some touring around. And I could either stay there at the compound all by myself all day waiting for my flight, or they invited me to come along and, and do some help them with this training that they were doing in a church in Nairobi. Well, that's a no-brainer. I don't want to sit here by myself. And uh, now, because of technology, I have access to my files from home anywhere in the world. So I was able to uh, get a lesson together to teach. They were doing some leadership training in a, in a church. And I taught a lesson on integrity talking about the story of Joseph from the Old Testament. And it happened, uh, this training in this, in this church in Nairobi. And I just want you to look carefully at what you see. You see cheap plastic chairs. You see a dirt floor. Uh, you can't see it on the picture, but uh, while I was teaching, there was a, uh, a group of cows. What's a, what's a group? A herd? A herd of cows? Is that what it's called? All right. So a, a group, a herd of cows walking down the alleyway outside the window. Uh, not an experience that I'm used to seeing outside the window of the church. And um, it's just a, this is the reality. And I want you to know that they, uh, they're very proud of this uh, structure. When they started in 2007, it was a field that was used for a dump site. They had to dig down eight feet 
just to clear the ground of accumulating garbage uh, throughout the years, just before they could even start. So they're not done. They're still working on their facility. Uh, but you know, you, you step into a into a church like this. How, how can you not? How can that not change you? This morning we are talking about change, and specifically we watched a video about a man named Simon. Simon was a changed man. We know Simon was a changed man because at one point in his life, his nickname was Simon the Zealot. We don't know much about Simon the Zealot because we aren't given his backstory in Scripture. But according to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we do know this. We do know that at one point, Jesus, he had a group of followers, and he appointed, out of that group of followers, he appointed 12. He, he called out 12 of them to be apostles. And these apostles were, were called by Jesus to a specific task. Uh, they, they were given authority to preach, uh, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. And Simon was one of these 12 who was called out, one of these 12 apostles. But there's no further explanation. That's all we're given. We're given his name and that he was, he was called out by Jesus to be an apostle. So that's what we know about him. But it's interesting. We can learn a lot uh, about him just from his nickname. Why was he given the nickname, The Zealot? How many of you have had a nickname? You don't have to tell me what it is, all right? You, you can keep it yourself. How many of you? You have or have had. Okay. I never had a nickname growing up, and I'm just telling you right now, I'm not going to start now, so you don't need to spend the rest of the morning like, i got to come up with a nickname. Don't, you don't need to waste your time. Uh, maybe you've had a, a nickname. Nicknames are interesting to me because you get them different ways. Some nicknames are ironic like maybe a person who is overweight and they call the person slim. Kind of mean, but sometimes nicknames are ironic like that. You call a really tall person shorty or a short, short person. You call them uh, stretch, whatever. You, you probably have met people that had a, a nickname that's like the opposite of, of uh, what they are. Some nicknames are, are just, just that. They're just mean reminders of something stupid that we did at some point in our life, or, or they're reminders of something about ourselves that we don't like. They're just mean. My, uh, my wife, now go with me on this, all right? My wife, go ahead and show this picture. She hit with her car a, a light pole in a parking lot. Now, the light pole didn't move. It's been there for quite some time. So she smashed her car up, uh, in this parking lot, just not paying attention. She was looking at something else, and she smashed the car up, okay? And so I was kind of wondering, like, how long do I have to wait before I can start calling her crash? <laughs> Turns out the answer is never. Never is the answer to that question. It will never be the right time. So sometimes nicknames are ironic. Sometimes they're just kind of mean. Sometimes they're reminders of dumb stuff that we've done. But sometimes, sometimes a nickname is, is tied to our identity. Sometimes a nickname proclaims to others what we're all about. Sometimes a nickname can tell others what's important to us, what our priorities are, what our, our focus 
on is in, in life is on. So if I introduced you to Simon the hippie, right, you would instantly know some things about Simon. You would you would know something about his worldview. You would know something about his priorities, the things that mattered to him, just based on his nickname. So in the New Testament, in that context, in that historical context, uh, the word or the nickname, the, ze- the, the, the name Zealot, the Zealots were uh, people, they were a group of people who fervently believed in, in a political cause, the political cause of Jewish independence away from Roman rule. The Zealots were like uh, our modern-day political activists, like PETA or Extinction Rebellion or Antifa. These are, these are groups that are, are willing to engage in violence. They're willing to engage in property destruction. They, 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 they have no problem creating chaos as long as it helps them achieve their political or their social goals. Well, that was the zealots. And before Simon met Jesus, he was part of this, this group, and, and they tried to incite rebellion against Rome. They, they wanted to bring harm to Jews that they looked at and said, uh, these, these people, uh, they don't hate the Romans enough. They are Roman sympathizers, and so they're on our list too. His worldview was colored by a belief that these Roman oppressors, they are corrupting uh, our way of life. They are, they are corrupting our, our people with, with, their, with their policies and, and with their presence uh, in, in, in our towns. And they need to be stopped by any means necessary. That's who Simon was. Simon the Zealot. But something caused Simon to change. He became someone who loved his enemies. He became someone who prayed for those who persecuted him. He, he became someone, listen to this, who, who could forgive a Roman sympathizer like Matthew. You know that name? Matthew, another one of the 12 apostles. And you know his backstory. He was a tax collector for the Roman Empire. He was a Jewish man who was collecting taxes, uh, putting a burden, helping the Romans put a burden on the Jewish people. And someone like Simon would look at someone like Matthew and see him as a traitor for his people. And yet, when Matthew left his life of being a tax collector and, and started following Jesus... And, and, and Simon, uh, he, he meets Matthew in this context. Somehow they, they're no longer enemies. Somehow they became brothers. How is that possible? How is that relationship change possible? What is it that, that caused such a radical change in Simon's life? And the answer is very simple. He met Jesus. He met Jesus. He decided to follow Jesus. And there was just something about meeting Jesus that changed him. His thinking changed. His worldview changed. His, his actions changed. His, his passions and his, his priorities, his identity changed. 
Those things could not stay the same because, well, his old way of thinking, his old way of living did not match up with who Jesus is and what Jesus taught. Those things were not compatible. So we may not know much about Simon the Zealot's backstory, but we do know this, that this witness to the resurrection has something to teach you and I about what it means to follow Jesus. Simon the Zealot has something to teach us about what it means to, to meet Jesus and, and, and follow him and what that experience does to change our lives. Simon's story is proof that if you and I, if, if we're going to follow Jesus, it, it means that we must be willing to change. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must be willing to repent. Let's talk about that word. If you're taking notes this morning, you might just want to jot some of these things down about repentance. Because repentance is a word that we use to talk about spiritual change. It's not just change in, in the style of our clothing, the style of our music, it's, uh, or, or a change to our dietary habits. No, repentance is specifically about spiritual change at the soul level, at the worldview level, at the, uh, the level where our priorities are and our values are, our identity. Repentance means... Here's a simple definition. It means to rethink the way that we think about things and go in a different direction. Repentance simply means to rethink the way we think about things and then go in a new direction. So for Simon, what does that mean? Well, for Simon, repentance meant that the path that he had been on in life, it had to change. He could not continue to be this this radical political revolutionary that was focused on overthrowing the Roman government. He had to refocus his life, no more on that, but now on, on following Jesus. Well, why? Why did he have to change? Well, because Jesus taught things like, love your enemy. <laughs> that wasn't what he had done before. Jesus taught things like pray for those who persecute you. Well, that's radically different from the way he had been living his life. Jesus taught things like seek first the kingdom of God. Put that in first priority in your life. Well, his focus had been on something very different. Jesus taught things, get this one, imagine knowing Simon the zealot and then hearing Jesus standing on the side of a mountain top or a side of a hill preaching this blessed are the peacemakers can you imagine simon the zealot hearing jesus say that well something's got to give cuz those two ideas of the zealot and the peacemaker don't match simon had to rethink his worldview he had to change his identity if he was going to follow jesus Simon had to be willing to change. He had to be willing to repent. And the same thing is true of you. It's, it's true of me. If, if, we are, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to change. We have to be willing to repent. See, the gospel message of repentance 
is not just about this one-time event that results in forgiveness. It is that. Praise God it is that. But repentance is also a message of change. It's a message of transformation in our, in our present circumstance as we're on our way to a secure future. Repentance is a way of life. It's a call to change the way that we think, to move in a new direction. We can't just stay on the same path that we've been traveling on if we're going to follow Jesus. Because he's moving in a different direction than we had been moving before we started following him. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to change. You know, there was, there was another man in the New Testament who was quite zealous about his faith. Take a guess who it might be. Yeah, Paul was pretty zealous about his Jewish faith, wasn't he? In fact, uh, his whole identity uh, was wrapped up in, in, uh, in purging the earth of Jesus' followers. He wanted to track them down, arrest them, put them in jail, execute them if possible. Like that was who Saul was before he met Jesus and got a new name that we now know as the Apostle Paul. Paul described this change that happened in his life when he met Jesus and began to follow him in Philippians chapter 3. Would you go ahead and grab your Bibles? I just want to spend a little bit of time with you this morning in Philippians chapter 3. I want to read some verses to you. And the, the context that we're going to read is this. Paul is describing this desire that he has to change. Yes, he's forgiven, but he wants to be like Jesus. It's not just, okay, I've, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I've been forgiven of my past. Praise God, I have a new future. The gospel is that. But Paul talks a lot about this process that is happening in his life, the process that should be happening in our life of change, of becoming more like Jesus. And he describes that starting here in verse 12 is where I want to jump into what he's talking about. He, he says, I, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfect, perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. And if you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. So Paul is illustrating following Jesus to be kind of like a runner running a race. Now, running a race may not be something that you can relate to. Uh, I, some people physically can't do that. Uh, I can physically do it. I just choose not to because I would rather go to the dentist uh, than go out and jog. I just, I don't, I don't enjoy it. And maybe that's you. Maybe physically that's not an option for you. 
Maybe you're like me and you just hate to run. Either way, it doesn't matter. We can all relate to the illustration. We, we all understand the concept, even if we can't physically do it or have no desire to do it. We get the concept. We've all seen runners run and, and cross a finish line. You've seen it on TV. You've seen it in movies. You've probably seen posters uh, hanging up somewhere. Like, you can do it, whatever. You've, you've seen people cross finish lines. And then usually what happens, like especially if it's a marathon, they, they cross the finish line and they collapse in exhaustion. And, uh, and then we look at them and we think to ourselves, why would you do this? This is why I don't run. <laughs> Paul is asking us, though, to imagine that we are that person. We may not be, but he's asking us to imagine that we are the kind of person that wants to run the race. Imagine that you and I are the person who does have this desire inside them to not only run, but to cross the finish line. Willing to endure the pain. Willing to in, in, endure all of the exhaustion that is required to complete the race. Imagine we are that person. And as we imagine ourselves running the race, Paul says, if you step into that illustration, there's some things that we can learn about what it means to live a life of repentance. What it means to have real change in our lives, because that's what he wants. He's, uh, he's talking here about, uh, I'm not there yet, but I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be the person that I used to be. I want to change. I want to be like Jesus. And there's some, I think, important things for us to consider in what he says here. Number, number one is this. He says, I'm not yet attained it. Uh, I'm not perfect yet. I, I, I want to be like Jesus, I'm not there yet, but that's, that's what I'm pressing on towards, that goal. And I think it's just a good reminder to me, to you, that we have not yet arrived. We've not yet arrived. We are not perfect. If, if you are someone who sits there and says to yourself, yeah, I don't think I really have much more to learn. Uh, you know, I, I know I come here because I'm supposed to, but I, I think I've got it all. I know all the verses. I'm, I pretty much know all the verses. And uh, I don't think there's much more I can learn. Uh, I don't really need to grow in my faith. I have already arrived. There's not much more that needs to change in me. I'm pretty much perfect. Now, I know you wouldn't say that out loud, but there are some who have an attitude like that, right? You, you probably know people like that. They're always right. They're never wrong. Uh, they've got it all figured out. They've got all the answers. They're kind of irritating, aren't they? And if, if, uh, if you don't know anyone like that, maybe you're the one like that. <laughs> Listen, it, if at any point we forget that we're not perfect, what that means is that pride and or laziness have deceived us. You understand? We, we all have room to grow. We have, if the Apostle Paul is saying to us, I've not yet arrived, good night. Why in the world would we think that we have arrived? You look at what the Apostle Paul did for Jesus Christ. 
did for the gospel, did for the kingdom of God, wrote most of the New Testament, and he's saying, I'm not perfect. We have to remember that there are still things for us to learn about God. There are still things for us to learn uh, uh, about the... When I was in, in Kenya, we studied a passage of Scripture that I have studied many times. And there were things that, that, that we were talking about that hit me in a different way, in a, uh, in a fresh way. Like, I never saw that. I never thought of it like that. Right? And this is a passage of Scripture that, that we had studied many times in my life. There's still things for us to not only learn, but there are places in our lives that need to change. There are things in our lives that, that need to change. There's things that you and I still need to do for his glory. You have not yet completed everything that God wants you to do for his glory. Not as long as there's breath in your lungs. So we have to first remember that uh, we haven't yet arrived. We're not yet perfect. We need, we need to keep running. And I'll put it this way. We have to remember that this race that we're in it's ours to run. It's not someone else's race. This is our race to run. And God expects us to run it to the end. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there's more to learn. As long as there is a, a heart that is beating, there is more to do for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. And it's your responsibility and my responsibility to keep running until we hit the end, until we get to the finish line. That's what God expects of us. The second thing that I found interesting in that little section about uh, where he talks about, I want to see this change happen in my life. He says, we need to forget what's in the past. And in the context, it's important to remember that he's not just talking about our past mistakes and failures. He is, but it's also the good stuff. In, in, in verses 4 through 11, he goes through this whole list of stuff that he could be proud of. His his family heritage, how good he was at following the rules. He goes through this whole list. He says, if, if, if there were things to boast about and be proud about, here's a whole list of stuff that I could be proud of. But he says, I'm forgetting that. It's in the past. And sometimes we have to uh, stop uh, this, this idea of, well, I don't need to do anything for the Lord because I did so much for the Lord years ago, I don't have to do it now. No, that's in the past. Praise God. Praise God that you, uh, that you were obedient and you were a faithful servant, but you're still breathing, so you need to keep moving. Forget the past. And it's, so that's the good part, but then there's also the things in our lives that uh, we're not so proud of. Certainly Paul uh, I think when he would look back over his life, you know, putting people in prison, I think the murder of Stephen, these are the kind of things as he looked back, uh, he would not be proud of those things. Simon the Zealot, I, I'm sure would be the same way. There are things that when he looked back over his life that he would be proud of, things that he would look back and not be proud of. Can you relate? Boy, I can relate to that. There's things in my past that I'm proud of. There are things in my past that I am not at all proud of. I think that's true of all of us. And Paul says, if, if you want to see change in your life, you've got to forget the past. You've got to forget the past. And I know sometimes that can be hard for us. I know for me, there's, there's things in my past that, 
uh, it, it can be super hard to, to, to forget and, and to not dwell on. Maybe there's something in your past where you know, someone said something, someone did something, and it really hurt you. Maybe you said something, maybe you did something to hurt someone else, and just the regret of that kind of sticks with you. It's in the back of your mind every time you think of that person that you hurt. Maybe it's the would have, could have, should have, didn't things in your life from the past that kind of haunt you. Like, man, I blew it. I had this opportunity, and for whatever reason, I was afraid or whatever. I didn't do it, and I should have. But driving through life focused on the past is kind of like driving a car and being way too focused on the rear view mirror. Now, the rear view mirror can be helpful, right? It can be helpful as a reference point to make sure that there's not something in our blind spot sneaking up on us. So uh, remembering the past in the sense where, look, I don't want to make the same mistakes. I want to learn from my mistakes. I don't want something sneaking up on me in my blind spot again, right? It can be a helpful thing to learn from our past mistakes. But when we get too focused on the past, it's just a matter of time until we veer off the road. It's only a matter of time until we drift into the wrong lane and eventually we're going to hit something. When we stay focused on the past too much, it's, it's, it's more likely that we will start to believe the lies that the enemy, the devil, whispers to us. He'll say things like, listen, just quit running. Just quit. Just give up. You're not going to outrun your past anyway. I don't know why you're even trying. You, you've, you've already disqualified yourself from your past mistakes. Just let someone who's a better runner pass you by. Sit down and relax. No, when Jesus died on the cross, every failure, every sin was paid for in full with his blood. It was buried with Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the grave, you know what came out of that tomb? Only Jesus, the victorious Savior. All the sin was left in the tomb. He left all of it buried in the tomb. And all we need to do is believe the gospel message and we walk away with Jesus and we leave that all behind. The third thing I see in what Paul was talking about, this idea of it's your race, it's my race, we're the ones that have to run it. God expects us to run it to the end, forget the past, keep moving forward. But then he says this, he says, strain forward to what lies ahead, the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you and I want to see change in our lives, we have to keep running, yes, towards the finish line, but here's an important distinction. Yes, we keep moving. Yes, we're headed towards the finish line, but we run towards it like it matters. We run towards the finish line like it matters. We can't sit down by the tomb of the past. We can't stop running just because life is hard and our circumstances are painful. 
We have to stay focused on the finish line, but we run towards it like it matters. Here's what I mean. It's very easy for us to look at someone who is running a race and wonder, what in the world is so special about what's on the other side of that finish line that would cause you to want to keep running? What would motivate you? Your lungs are burning. Your legs feel like logs. The, the, the mountain that we're running up is so steep. We look at a runner who, who finishes a marathon and they collapse. And let's say that they won, they first, second, third, whatever. They, they, they win and, and what do they get? <laughs> Here's a trophy. Here's a medal for around your neck. You get to stand on this little platform. And it's so easy to look at that and say, good for you, dude. Good for you. But I'm not getting off this couch for that stupid trophy. I don't care. That metal around your neck is not enough to motivate me to get up and go do that. Paul said that the goal, the finish line is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we read there like, oh, okay, well, that, thanks for clearing that up, Paul. What in the world does that mean? Is he talking about heaven? Well, yes, yeah, certainly heaven is on the other side of the finish line for the believer. But I want you to look again at verse 16. Would you look at verse 16? This is fascinating. He says, let's live up to what we've already attained. Let's live up to what we already have attained. Listen, because of what Jesus did for us, the other side of that finish line, the day that we take our last breath, yes, will be eternity in a place where Jesus, he, he bought and paid for us to be there with his own blood. And imagine Jesus is standing at the finish line. Paul says, live, run like that moment matters. Live your life, run this race like you really believe that Jesus is waiting for you at the finish line. Like that matters to us. I would say this, Paul's, I think, challenging me when I read this to say, I don't, listen, I, I don't know how you meet Jesus and it doesn't change you. How do you meet Jesus how do, you, how do you experience his love and grace and it doesn't radically change you? In the book of Acts, toward the end of Paul's life, and he's on trial, right? He's going from place to place and he's being questioned. One of those times he was being questioned, uh, the question was, what, what is this teaching that is so controversial that has these people all wound up? What, what is it that you're teaching? And so Paul explains the gospel, and, and as he's explaining the gospel, he says, well, one of the things that I teach is I teach people to repent and turn to God, right? And we would expect that. That's the salvation message. But then he said this in Acts 26, verse 20, he says, I teach people to repent and turn to God, and he said, prove your repentance by your deeds. Isn't that interesting? 
Paul's message of the gospel isn't just forgiveness from our past. It's transformation in our present on our way to our secure future. The challenge is about change in our lives to repent, to rethink the way that we think about things and then go in a new direction. And so we have to ask ourselves, is there something in in my worldview, is there something in your worldview that does not match up with what Jesus taught, with who Jesus is? Is there something in your life, is there something in my life that is in conflict with the standards of God that have been revealed to us in his word? The gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, it is a message of forgiveness from the past. Praise God. But it's also a message of change and transformation in our present as we are on our way to a secure future. It is a call on your life and my life to move in a new direction. We can't stay on the same path that we've been on if we want to follow Jesus. Because he's moving in a different direction than the one we were on. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to change. We must be willing to live a life of repentance. It's a way of life. And I guess the question that I have to ask myself and that you have to ask yourself, are we we willing to do that? Are you willing to run the race all the way to the finish line? Knowing that Jesus is waiting for you and believing that the moment that you cross the line and embrace Jesus, that that moment will be worth all the pain, all the suffering, all the endurance that it took to get there. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then we need to run the race. We need to live our lives like we believe it.